anyone has a cheeky three quarters of a million bucks hanging around, I have found you the deal of a century. A celebrity memorabilia website in the US is selling documents from the arrests of late rappers Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls with their fingerprint cards as well. Now, Tupac's papers are from when he served nine months for sexually assaulting a female fan. Terrible behaviour. Biggie had also then been arrested for a robbery and aggravated assault charge in Pennsylvania. The incident involved a concert promoter who claimed Biggie and his entourage beat him after an alleged dispute in 1995. The good news is you don't have to buy both. You can just grab one for 225000 US dollars. So that's about 370000 Kiwi if you're on a budget, if, if three quarters of a mil is too much to ask. You know, it's funny, I'm talking about this as if it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but people or someone will end up buying these. Anyway, kia ora. This is Newsville. I'm Imogen. Welcome to a new week. This is what's worth talking about. Finally, the new government is being sworn in today. So what's on the top of their agenda for their first week in power? The giant carbon-sucking vacuums that could be the future of climate change action. Why are conspiracy theorists linking conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East? Plus... Are animals trying to take over the world? We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Thank you to all of you for your patience and your understanding and the wait for this government to be formed over the last 20 days. It's not every day you get to say this, but we're beginning the week with a new government. Finally, six weeks after the election, Christopher Luxon, David Seymour and Winston Peters will get down to business. Heaps to talk about here, so to provide some expert insight is Anna White, a senior political reporter for The Post. Kia ora Anna and welcome to Newsable for the first time. Kia ora Emma, good to be here. First of all, can you set the scene for us? How does today's swearing in work and then where to from here? Is it boom, straight to work? Is there a cabinet meeting? Like, What do we know? So at the moment, what we know is at 11 o'clock, we're all going to go down to Government House. That's Christopher Luxon, David Seymour, Winston Peters and all the cabinet ministers. We're all popping down on a bus <laughs> and we're arriving where they'll get sworn in. So that's largely ceremonial, but it it happens in the beautiful government house buildings. The Governor-General, Dame Cindy Kittle, is going to ask them if they can form a government, sign all the paperwork, and then it's done. Then is it straight to work? Christopher Luxon does have on the cards a couple of cabinet meetings. He'll have to do his speech from the throne to set out what his government for the next three years is going to look like. And then on the 5th of December, so next week, that's when the show really begins. And uh, it's obviously now been a few days since we got to see those coalition agreements. What policies have drawn the most attention? It was so full of policy. There was uh, quite a few to choose from. So I guess it depends who you go to. Uh, There was some people critical of the lack of climate change minister in cabinet. Uh, There were some people who were uh, maybe landlords, happy to have that interest deductibility Uh, Coming back on their rental homes, some workers concerned about the return of 90-day trials for all businesses uh, and the promise to scrap uh, the fair pay agreements before Christmas. 
And smoke-free uh, policies were getting quite a bit of attention over the weekend as well. No, that's a really interesting one because what we saw from the negotiations is National's tax policy plan had a bit of a hole in it because they couldn't get through the partial lifting of the foreign buyers ban to pay for the tax policy. So what they are doing now, as Nicholas sort of explained over the weekend, is using some of the taxes that come in from smoking to pay for their tax policy. And we've also, of course, got our biggest parliament ever. There's now 123 MPs, three more than the standard 120 after the Port Waikato by-election was won by Nationals' uh, Andrew Bailey. More importantly, though, are there enough chairs for all of these people? That's actually a really interesting question. So when uh, we had some of our movement last year of some of the MPs sort of becoming independent, they ended up now, if, you, if you're looking from where the speaker sits out mm-hmm. the back, just on the left, right at the back, that's where those extra seats are. So there are enough seats for them. <laughs> good to know. So don't you worry, no one's sitting on the floor. Oh, could have been a bit of fun. Uh, and it's also looking like we're going to get a referendum on extending the parliamentary term from three years to four. Now, I'm actually really interested in this one. But there's been politicians over the years talking about how this is needed to give them a bit more time. They've done referendums twice before in the past, never passed. Mm. But what they want to do is see David Seymour's members bill, or previously a members bill, through to the first reading. So that would mean that a Prime Minister has the ability to ask the Governor-General to make the term four years. But the select committees, so the so the groups of MPs who kind of really scrutinise laws coming through, would have to be more swayed to the opposition side to give it a bit more balance. Sure. So we could be voting on that in the 2026 election. Which seems so far away, but yet so close at the same time. Anna White, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and uh, enjoy the week. Thanks, Anna. Speaking of a four-year parliamentary term, do you think we should have them? Let's hold our own referendum right here, right now. We did it with the flag, didn't we? I think we did it with the flag 2.0, so let's hold another one. Uh, Head to our Instagram, we'll have a poll. Vote in it. Find us by searching Newsable NZ. A ginormous machine which sucks carbon dioxide from the air in a bid to turn back the clock on climate change has been launched in California. Quite timely too, as this year's UN climate conference, known as COP, kicks off this week in Dubai. It's when member states come together to discuss how to tackle rising temperatures. Climate tech company Heirloom has unveiled America's first commercial direct air capture facility in the city of Tracy. It's around 60 miles from San Fran. So could machines like this be a major player in the fight against climate change? Well, to talk through this, we're joined by Paul Bennett from the Crown Research Institute, Scion. Kia ora, Paul. Kia ora. Paul, how do these machines work? They're just big um, vacuum cleaners that suck um, air in and separate the individual um, components of air so they take carbon dioxide out and then the key is how do you use that carbon dioxide so it's about taking carbon dioxide out of air at at reasonably low levels and then really concentrating it into pure carbon dioxide big fans big vacuum cleaner a lot of energy required to do it absolutely 
Are they as groundbreaking as they sound to to me, for example? Um, there there are several companies working on direct air capture at the moment, mostly all in North America. So um, there's some in Canada as well, um, some in the US. But the sort of technology that they're using has been used before in other industries for many years. Now, these things are massive. So for the amount of carbon they extract, are they worth it when you take into the account of building them, transporting them and running them? You mentioned how much energy they use up. Yeah, I mean, the amount of energy, the amount of capital required to invest in these sort of plants will will be huge. The energy obviously has to be 100% renewable as well. Otherwise, why do it? Um, What's the point? (laughs) So the big question marks for me are um, the overall costs of this. And let's not forget, we do have alternatives and we have been using them for millennia. Uh, They're called trees. Then given how, like you've just mentioned, the cost and the the size of these things, do you reckon we could see these improve and get more usable as as such and they could then become a significant part of the solution? All all technologies of this type um, always improve over time. The first of the kind will always be more expensive, more inefficient. And as you roll out more of these sorts of machines, you will see a reduction in, in overall costs. Where are we, by the way, in terms of meeting the Paris Agreement targets? So we're, we're a long, long way off. Um, the United Nations announced that we were tracking towards a, a three-degree temperature rise on average around the world. If you think back to the Paris Agreement, um, the target then was one5 Three degree increase in in temperature will cause severe climate change. So we'll see a a massive disruption to weather patterns around the world, particularly in New Zealand over the last 12 months, we've had some horrendous weather. So what do you hope to see come out of this COP meeting this week? We have to reduce our our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, There's a whole host of technologies that are deployable now and we just need to get on and get those moving. The key is, though, um, we can't we can't back winners. The problem is so big, we've got to back all these technologies, and it will come at a cost. Paul Bennett from Scion, the Crown Research Institute. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories, or you just prefer to listen instead. The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. We're still going to talk about new research looking at the latest conspiracy theories, but always a friendly reminder, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, check us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. Gaza and Ukraine are two very different conflicts, but somehow conspiracy theorists are trying to link the two on social media. An academic based at the University of Tasmania in Australia, Nick Evans, has been digging into the disinformation appearing online as the conflict in Gaza intensifies and has seen the growth in anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish theories. Nick is with us now. Kia ora, welcome to Newsable. Thanks for having me. 
what did you find? Um, well, I found two things. The, the first is a fairly unsurprising finding, uh, which is that hate speech and threatening speech is a lot higher in uh, topics relating to the Gaza-Israel-Hamas conflict. Um, secondly, that the reason this conflict uh, has generated such hateful speech is partly explained by the conspiracy theories that have been cropping up on alternative social media platforms. Um, in particular, conspiracy theories evolving around anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish conspiracies. And perhaps the most unique finding, I think, is that a lot of them tried to tie in this very separate conflict happening in uh, Eastern Europe. And how were they trying to do that? I think there's sort of three main ways. Uh, one very direct way, uh, which is characterising both conflicts as a kind of continuation of a grand conspiracy theory, a, a new world order conspiracy yeah. theory with the usual suspects involved. And the second way, a less direct way, but still uh, quite present, is tying them together by explaining the justification of the conflict using similar reasons. So these are not real Jews, they're fake ones, they're Zionists, they're Nazis. That justified Russia's invasion, and similarly it justifies Hamas's actions. And then the final way in which that they're linking them is in a way to try and tie the West's support up for Ukraine as hypocritical because the weapons that have been used in Ukraine were then used by Hamas. How widespread are these messages, Nick? Is, is it like I could log on to X or, or Instagram and see these on my own feeds? I'd say you're probably going to be a bit harder pressed to find them on Instagram um, or, or maybe Facebook just because of their content moderation policies that they've implemented post-COVID and also because certain um, politicians or, or figures have been pushed off those platforms. But if you logged into Telegram, you could find these very easily. Um, if you logged into X now, you'd probably be able to find them quite easily too. I only conducted this particular piece of research over a week-long period. And even in that period of time, we're talking five to 10,000 comments that could easily be categorised under these theories. Have we got any idea what's driving them? Why do people do this stuff? Great question. I mean, I, I would say there's two things going on here. The first is what I would call a conspiracist kind of worldview, which is distinguished, I think, between an individual conspiracy by seeing the world as sort of interlocking conspiracies. And a lot of this stuff kicked off over COVID. We saw people kind of interpreting rolling incidents as being evidence of this ongoing global conspiracy, you know, New World Order stuff, Great Reset stuff. We saw this in the Wellington protests, right? We saw this in the Canberra protests over here. That would be the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that we can't discount the role that state-based propaganda has played, particularly the Russian state. It's not as organised as people might suggest it is, but you can definitely see some of it. As an example, the suggestion that the weapons used in Ukraine, funded by the West, are being used in Gaza, directly assists the Russian strategic interests there in the region of deterring Western support. And we just saw in the last few days that there is rumours, at least, that Russia is wanting to fund um, Hezbollah, for instance. How dangerous are messages like this? Like, not everyone listening, for example, is going to have access to Telegram. So can we not just leave these people to sort of fester in their <laughs> own festering? and you we'll know, leave them to their own devices. Yeah. Um, I'd say that just like, like, like terrorism itself or, or other forms of extremism, there's only ever going to be a, a very small number who might act on the belief versus the larger number who might talk about it. But the, the worry will be, and always is, that A, it 
can normalize those kind of discussions and conspiracies. And we saw over COVID, that was a great example of that, where fringe conspiracy theories that were unfamiliar to most people who weren't, you know, chronically online, um, suddenly started coming into the mainstream. I think that's a worry. The second worry is, of course, if we don't know what's happening on these alternative platforms, particularly, then people can be caught by uh, be alarmed or, or caught off guard when something happens. As an example, last year uh, we had um, two Australian police officers murdered um, up in Queensland and two seriously injured by individuals who were very embedded in that conspiracy extremist milieu. Um, uh, at the moment, the coronial inquest is still ongoing, so more will come out. Or in New Zealand, we had this individual who was the what the first person to be convicted of sabotage yes. uh, after trying to blow up the North Island's power grid. And so I think we should be concerned that even if these are happening off the mainstream platforms, that there is extremism and so that comes off them. But secondly, we do see them creep onto the mainstream platforms. You know, a good example, just a little one, is this 15-minute city stuff. That yes, started yep. off, right? That started off on these small platforms. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing it on Facebook and you're seeing it in um, council meetings where people are objecting to the, whatever the initiative might be mm. in fear that it might further this 15-minute mm. stuff. Thank you so much for the work you do and for taking the time to chat to us, Nick Evans from the University of Tasmania. Thank you for having me. Now... Regular listeners will know how much we love a good animal story on Newsable. This one, not so much. In fact, I don't know why I'm bringing you a gross animal story, but here we are. It's about scary creatures taking over. We've covered the bed bug boom. Now I can tell you about the rat apocalypse facing a small town in tropical Queensland. Residents have reported seeing millions of the icky rodents around Corumba, with experts suggesting they're attracted by unusually wet weather and abundant food supplies. But however much food there is, there's still not enough to go around, so they're turning on each other. Yep, this is a story about cannibal rats to kickstart your week, and I hope you're enjoying your breakfast. I apologise. But it doesn't stop there. We've got the rat apocalypse, and then when we head to the US, the pig plague that's threatening northern US states, already rife in Canada. The so-called super pig is on the verge of infiltrating wilderness states like Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana. It's a crossbreed, I'll have you know, between the Eurasian boar, which is known for its amazing survival skills, and the domestic Canadian swine, which is big, chonky and fertile. And experts reckon this is an ecological disaster in the making, with the creatures chomping their way through crops at a rapid rate. And they're so smart. Hunters have been banned from targeting them over fears the pigs will learn how to outwit the humans. Why can't it be koalas? Or red pandas. Or donkeys. Something cute and fluffy. Rather than cannibal rats or terrifying pigs trying to take over towns and US states. That's my plea for the next animal considering a takeover. If you're listening, can you please be cute? If not, maybe reconsider. Anyway, that's news of all for today. I'm Imogen Wells. Have a goodie. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz support.